All right, so we're into Romans, and we're still in Romans 13. We covered the hard part of Romans 13 last week, which is this being subject to the authorities, the governing authorities. I have a hard time with that, especially at a time like this in the United States. Mm-hmm. So how did you deal with that? You want to recap? Can I get a little... A, little, a nutshell. A nutshell? Version? I'll try to remember. I think that Paul is uh, talking about normal situations and normal uh, matters pertaining to government, such as you don't want to break the law, go out and break the law. You, you don't want to uh, resist the authorities uh, just because they're bad. That would only get you into worse trouble, and it would bring dishonor on God in the eyes of people. So he's talking about that. He's not talking about where government conflicts with conscience. He's not dealing with that issue. Jesus dealt with both those two issues. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Uh, but Paul doesn't quite do that. So that's, that's the one takeaway point. The second takeaway point is that, that Paul is establishing a principle here when he says, Therefore, whoever risks authority resists what God has appointed. This is verse 2. And those who resist will incur judgment, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you wish to have no fear of the authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive its approval, for it is God's servant for your good. For if you do what is, But if you do what is wrong, you should be afraid, for the authority does not bear the sword in vain. It is the servant of God to execute wrath on the wrongdoer. That's the state's prerogative. God has ordained. He has, I don't think that Paul is talking about God has ordained Hitler to do what Hitler did, or that he has ordained Trump to do what Trump is doing. That's not what is being said here. What is being said here is he has ordained the, authority, the powers of authority to do government. The, taking care of crime, taking care of the, the matters of government. And he's not ordained the church to do that. So the church does not have the, the right to bear the sword. Does not have the right to punish. But to discipline. To discipline. But not to punish in the sense of, in the way that the government does. Incarcerate. Incarcerate. Kill. Um, Etc. So the actually only discipline that the church has the ability to do is put someone out of the church. So again, like you're saying, it's more of a principle. Yeah, a principle of authority. Of authority. And and to me, to me, I find that very very reassuring. That, that God has ordained this to the state and not to the church. Mm-hmm. Because we're rapidly heading a time when it seems that that is getting blurred. Yeah, well, and any, any time in history where those mm-hmm. two things have overlapped, regardless of what the religious bent of whether it was, whether it's Christian, Jewish, uh, Islamic, Buddhist, whatever, it has not worked well. No. Uh, Somebody has always there has, there a has group of be, people have always gotten hurt. Yeah, and so there has to be that separation there. So those are my two take, main takeaway points. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. I agree with that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then, and then, pray for the people. And, uh, yes, pray for the people in authority. Absolutely, I'm forgetting to do that. So now we're coming to chapter to verse eight. 
Well, actually, we did verse eight, but I'm going to I'm going to overlap because it's interesting that he follows this discussion of government and authority with owe no one anything except to love one another, for the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law. The commandments: you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word: love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, or some versions have love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Why would he put love following authority? And maybe what we should do is just finish the chapter. Besides this, you know what time it is, how it is now the moment for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first became believers. The night is far gone, the day is near. Let us then lay aside the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us live honorably as in the day, not in reveling and drunkenness, not in debauchery and licentiousness, not in quarreling and jealousy. Instead, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. This all seems to be, it almost feels like if this were a chiastic structure, A prime, I mean, A would be obey the authorities. And A prime would be wake from, no, would be put on the Lord Jesus Christ, make no room for the flesh. B would be uh, what God has, uh, well, if if you want, don't want to get in trouble with the authorities, obey them. Mm -hmm. And then don't be drunken and, and licentious and all of that would be B prime, and so on. It almost feels like this is a chiastic structure, and if that's the case, the peak is owe no one anything except to love one another. Mm-hmm. So what is what is Paul trying to do here with this? Love being the center, central point of this chapter. Paul always follows his counsel or admonition with the principles that he wants the believers to emulate in their lives. Okay, so he doesn't just say do this right with the negative, he follows it with a positive. Okay. So love. If you love, you've done this and you've done that. The other two ends of the chiasm. Yeah. Right. Right. And I think that what what that points to me is that God's government is based on love. It isn't based on rules. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I honestly think that the rules-based system is a human-created one and that Lucifer introduced the concept of law. What? So Moses, Moses chiseled out the Ten Commandments himself? No. No, I'm, I'm talking way back before this world was created. Ellen White says it came as an awakening to the angels as something unthought, almost unthought of, that there was law. They understood love. Oh, I see what you mean. They did not understand law. law. So I, I really think that Satan was the one that introduced that shape and form. The reason God has used laws is because that's something, we something we're used to. That is something that I've, over the last number of years, uh, I've come to a stronger and stronger belief that that is that the underlying from 
Genesis 1, clear through the end of Revelation, that that it's all about relationships mm-hmm. uh, and that mm-hmm. and, and love and that um, and that when it comes to the whole concept of sin, that as you said, it's not it's not just God had set out a bunch of just arbitrary. <clears throat> hoops that we needed to jump through and if you can get through each of the hoops then at the other end then well then maybe we can have you know we can relationship. Out. yeah that what he's trying to do is that sin is anything that damages relationships mm-hmm. whether it be our relationship to ourselves, our relationship to each other our relationship with God, in, in whatever dimension that may go, if it damages the relationship, then it's sin, and that, and that that actually is a rather dynamic thing, though that can change from relationship to relationship. You know, you can't just put that down in, in, a, in a list, but uh, the, the the Ten Commandments, or whatever, it's just kind of like that's like the the bare basic bones. Uh, kind of thing okay well if, at least don't kill each other you know <laughs> can we start with that um, you know and don't steal each other's stuff and you know whatever but that that was just kind of step A but that that really wasn't it it was um, uh, somewhere I think actually it was Carl Cossart when he had his uh, it was at uh, when he did the uh, quarterly several years ago on I think it was Galatians um, but uh, anyway in his little supplemental book he was talking about how that the that the Ten Commandments was it was like a trying to at least start give the idea of God's character say okay I want you to love each other that's this is who I am and that's how I want you to treat each other and they kind of looked at each other and said well What's that mean? And uh, so he said, okay, well, we'll start with this. And that it's kind of like that there was a spotlight and it was giving just sort of the shadow outline of God and his character. Um, but it wasn't until Jesus came that you actually, that he kind of stepped. So it wasn't, you know, just the outline, but we actually saw the whole character um, of who God was um, and what it meant to, to actually live a life fully loving each and every person around you and what that looked like um, that that's what you know he's been drawing us step by step towards uh, trying to trying to yeah. do yeah very well said um, what comes to my mind is I used to have my ethics class my introduction to Christian ethics class read the book by Joseph Fletcher it's classic called Situation Ethics uh, Joseph Fletcher is the father of Situation Ethics in America and that was his his book on it, and I so I used to have them read it. I stopped because it's it's still a classic, but it, society has moved on to so many different things that mm-hmm. I just include situation ethics as one of the ways ethics is done. But of course, it, uh, Joseph Fletcher uh, worked out a scheme where love was the principle, controlling principle in situation ethics, and he just did the loving thing, even if it seemed wrong. Uh, and his big case was the woman in the concentration camp who got a, who got pregnant by a guard at her choice, so that she could get out of prison, mm-hmm. because they sent pregnant women home, and she went back to her family and they raised the baby together. Um, 
So he used that as an example of the loving thing to do, the most loving thing to do for her family and for herself was to get out, was to get out whatever way she could. So I had my students read that and, and write a book review on it. And I had an older student in the class who wrote the most interesting review. I had my reader reading it, and she brought it to my attention. She says, I think you really ought to read this one. She's told how uh, she grew up in a very abusive, dysfunctional family. And at 14, they kicked her out. She had to live on the streets. And she said, were it not for having learned the Ten Commandments and other rules in Sunday school, in Lutheran Sunday school as a child, she said, I would have not been spared some of the activities that homeless people engage in, like stealing and, and what have you. She said, I, because of knowing the Ten Commandments, I uh, was able to keep away from that. She said, if somebody had just told me to love, I wouldn't have known what that meant. She had never. She said, "You have to experience love in order to love." And she's the one I think that actually taught me that principle. You have to be loved in order to love, because she had no experience in it. Her parents didn't love her. So, so I think that dovetails with what you were saying. The other thing that comes to my mind is if you go look at the covenant, which is the biblical essential, quintessential relationship. Uh, that you have. Um, we tend to think of the covenant as more like an ancient Near Eastern treaty, which is far removed from a genuine relationship. Mm-hmm. It's true that in Ezra Haddon's succession treaty, the vassal is t- the, the people who are supposed to make sure that uh, Ezra Haddon becomes the king after Sennacherib are told to love Ezra Haddon. They are commanded to love him. But love doesn't mean what love means to us in the New Testament, in a New Testament sense. So we tend to obscure the covenant and think of it as a legal relationship, but actuality, it is supposed to be a trust relationship. And trust is the core of that relationship. And this was actually brought home to me uh, very clearly by, I'll see if I can get his titles in order. Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, and I don't think I have all his titles in there. Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, he's also a professor <laughs> at Cambridge. Um, he's the chief rabbi in the U- United Kingdom. And he has a treatment of the covenant of... And he, he suggests that the covenant is about trust. And that the reason we have an unstable economic system is because we have lost trust. We have not made trust the most important thing. Self-interest is how we run economics. And it's called social Darwinism. The self-interest model. Um, survival of the fittest. Social yeah. Darwinism has so yeah. pervaded American culture yeah. that it's all about me. Right. And and it was it was actually before Darwin I think it was or was it when Darwin was alive um, I can't think of I can't think of the one who makes the statement it's not to the butcher or the baker that we owe our daily owe our daily bread but to the principle of self interest um, I just can't think who said that I have it in the book at home so 
if that's the case, that trust is the relationship that God wanted in the covenant, the Sinai covenant was a covenant of works. And that's why Paul goes where he does about Sinai. And when we get to Galatians, we'll see this. Sinai is Hagar. And in, in the New Jerusalem is uh, Sarah. Uh, or the Abrahamic covenant going backwards to that. So, right. you were going to say something. Well, it, uh, there's one other thing that kind of comes to mind as far as why love might fit right in here and that comes back a little bit to what at the very beginning when you're saying I don't know what to do with this when I disagree with the powers that be um, and when you think back through history as far as the successful resistance movements mm-hmm. have all been love based mm-hmm. mm-hmm. um, whether, whether it's Jesus whether it's uh, Gandhi Martin Luther King Jr. The, they have all been or even the Truth up. and Reconciliation Commission uh, in, in South, South Africa. Africa. Yeah, but that yeah, yeah, certainly um, that um, <clears throat> would would fit in all this as well as far as uh, but <clears throat> that um, but that you know, unfortunately, when I look around and see, I mean, as far as what we've been having today, you know, the the, the protests or whatever, it I mean, it's coming from a place of hatred mm-hmm. and anger and, and whatever, and that. They end up being as destructive or more destructive mm-hmm. than what they are actually protesting against. Mm-hmm. Um, that the only thing that actually historically has ever had a positive change is a movement that's based on love. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to take on the government, here's the way to do it. Yes. Mm-hmm. Very good. Mm-hmm. Very good. And ultimately, Every human government will find itself at odds with, with God's principles of doing. And at some point, at some it's very obvious from the beginning. Others, not so much. But that, just by virtue of being too many humans involved, um, there it's not going to match up. And so, at some point, there is going to be a point of conflict uh, be, between. God's way of doing things. And so we're going to have to, at some point, say, I'm sorry, I can't do that. I, I feel lately uh, like I've been meeting that conflict in my classroom, um, in that students do not understand why God has all this power and he didn't do it a different way in dealing with the sin problem. Mm-hmm. He, he could fix it. He just has all the power. And I've had to divest them of that by saying, God does not run his universe on power. He runs it on moral principles of his character. Right. Well, I mean, and you, it comes back to, again at the um, a couple points towards the end of Jesus' life. Uh, one in the upper room when John says that Jesus at that point recognized that God, uh, the Father, had given him all authority, all power on heaven and earth, that he was the most powerful being in the universe. And at that point, he gets up and he washes his the disciples' feet. He, knowing, so he, knowing he was God, knowing that he had come from God and was going to God, he and that took he, his he took that and, yeah. and leveraged his power to serve the people around him. Yeah. It's, um, it's power, it's, as um, Greg Boyd likes to put, it's power under instead of power over. Right. And then, yeah. just before 
he, he his ascension, he turns around to his disciples and again says, look, God had given me this power and now I'm giving this power to you. Now you go out and use it the same way I did with you. Yes. Because God's power is never used for selfish ends. We we perpetually tend to use power for selfish ends. Right, and where our power corrupts. Well, actually, you know, that, it's interesting. I read something a while back that it really resonated with me. That it had to do with it's a, you know, the idea that power corrupts is is not true. Power reveals what was already there. Mm. Mm. Um, oh, that's good. <laughs> um, that's really good. And so, the reason. I don't do X, Y, and Z is because I don't have the power to do it. But if suddenly I'm given the authority or the ability to do it, the things that I wanted to do or all be, along all I be, of a sudden or become, I become Or I become corrupt enough to just go ahead and seize power to do it. And uh, whereas um, in Jesus' case, it was safe to give him this power because he was not going to use it for He's his the own. the only one who doesn't abuse his power. No. Yep. Yeah, very good. Thank you. Mm-hmm. That's good. So, anything else in this chapter? Maybe the last few verses. Can we say that the works of darkness are all about power? Uh, how us uh, abuse of power? You think about the power to take another person's spouse. Adultery. The power to take another person's life, murder. The power to take another person's thing, theft. The power to take away their integrity. Their reputation. Their false reputation. Witness. False, false witness. Right. And I think, I think as a church, we have fallen into the trap of bearing false witness a lot. I think every time we talk about someone about what we've heard about them. Every time we go after someone's reputation. I think even when we know that someone is in the wrong, we have to be careful. To protect them. To protect them and not to talk about them. If, well, it depends on the situation. If it's sexual abuse. Then right, right. Then we have to report it. But, but I'm thinking <coughs> about a, a certain... Uh, situation in the Adventist church right now that's very easy to fall into the trap of talking, talking, talking about it especially one individual and I think we have to be careful we can talk about the problem but we don't have to talk about the person well we have only two minutes and I don't really want to start chapter 14 because it's on a different track slightly different track uh, still about love, but it's a very specific thing. So uh, we have only three more chapters, and we will be through Romans. First and Second Corinthians. Are we going to go in order? Yeah. Oh, nice. First and Second Corinthians, and what I'd like you to do is to take Goodspeed's way of reading First and Second Corinthians. He fig- he thinks he thought I should say he passed down. He's been dead many years, but he he was a New Testament scholar in Chicago, Chicago University of Chicago. He believed that 
everybody knows, and reckon, all scholars know and recognize that there's a letter writ, uh, written to Corinth that is missing. And he believes it's, it's uh, some, a, few set, a few set of verses that are part of that letter that are in a very odd place. They break up the flow, the natural flow, and they're, they're different tone uh, and, and style. And so if we started with that, and then we read 1 Corinthians as the second letter, and then part of 2 Corinthians, the last part of 2 Corinthians as the third letter, the stern letter, and then the first part of 2 Corinthians as the last letter, the fourth letter. It makes for a completely different understanding of 2 Corinthians. Um, it, because it, it, it's reordered so that you actually hear the story going on that, that Paul's experiencing with Corinth and, and explains why he wrote the stern letter and, and everything. And it's, it's quite, quite helpful. Okay. So that's the order you want us to read? Yeah. Um, now, we're not going there yet. I'm going to be introducing that again. But since um, around the table we don't always come... We're not always here when I introduce it. It's been a while since I've done this. It's okay. You can extend it to us. I think what I'll do is send it in an email. Oh, okay. When I, yeah. <clears throat> when I announce the Sab School's <clears throat> meeting, I'll just, I, that way I can look it up. Hopefully track down Goodspeed's article on it. Um, but why don't we do that? And then, um, so we'll continue with Romans until we get through it. Uh, it's the only book I intend to read or have us talk about uh, in whole, as a whole. The other books we'll be picking and choosing because our topic is salvation and atonement. So, uh, let's have prayer, and then we'll turn. Dear God, thank you that Paul has shown us the way how to relate to every situation and everything in our lives, and that is through love. Help us to follow his advice. Help us to truly love one another and owe no one anything except love. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.